Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. This is Dr. Cindy Banyer here with Dr. Cindy Speaks. I am a congressional candidate for Florida District 19. I'm a mom and small business owner, and I'm fighting for our water, our health, and our community. And, and here we are. Today is May 4th, uh, Star Wars Day, as some people are calling it. Otherwise, here in the state of Florida, it is known as our Grand Reopening Day. So um, not very exciting or as exciting as you would hope an opening or a grand reopening would be. I know that a lot of people have been anticipating this, but this is not something that is without question or without issue here in Florida. So last week we saw the opening of our beaches and we saw people flock to the beaches really after having been so tired of being cooped up in their homes. They didn't know what to do with themselves. Uh, Many people ignoring social distancing protocols or not wearing masks or, I mean, I'm always just worried about the water as a vector in general. So I'm, anyway, I just don't quite um, understand. I love the beaches, but I don't understand the, the draw to go out there and like take a dip in a giant pool of virus. So that doesn't sound like something I would want to do, but many people are very excited about it. We did have the very interesting fellow dress up as a grim reaper going around to the beaches. And that was pretty interesting. The fellow who was actually doing that, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name, but he is a lawyer here in Florida and actually had spent time very early in the corona pandemic trying to sue the governor to get him to close down the beaches for the good of the public. And the Grim Reaper is just, I guess, the next step for him and um, made some very fantastic, uh, probably iconic photos moving forward. And uh, it was topped off by a very uh, hilarious interview on live local news where the camera or the reporter just handed him the microphone as he's dressed in a Grim Reaper costume with a giant scythe and uh, he said his piece on the live news. So that, uh, that's the update on the opening of the beaches. But today was the opening of the restaurants and retail. And again, mixed bag for folks as they are engaging in this. I believe the store capacities were halved at 50% or something along those lines. It could be 25 off the top of my head. I'm, I'm not remembering because I don't own a store and don't plan on going to one anytime soon. But uh, restaurants were also allowed to open and this, uh, they were allowed to open at 25% capacity and uh, limited dine-in as well as extended capacity out on outside, which is something that you can do all year round in Florida for the most part. 
and that seemed to be an attractive option for a lot of people. And even cities I saw were easing restrictions on where restaurants and things could put these outdoor tables. One saw one very interesting area, I believe it was in uh, Tampa, where they had actually shut down some of the streets, which is something that could actually be done in Fort Myers and would be very interesting from the perspective of somebody who wants to see the downtown area become essentially a, a walking only area like me. I could I could kind of get behind that. Not that I'm going to be going to any of these restaurants anytime soon. So the question for me, also, in, you know, just other things that are going on, universities are closed at least through the summer. So we know that that is going to continue to be something that is up for debate and discussion, whether or not universities are going to open their campuses come the fall. K-12 schools have been, again, postponed, not postponed, but the campuses have been closed through the rest of the school year here, which means that I um, am continuing to be homeschool IT support for my two elementary school children on top of snack monitor for my three-year-old. And, uh, but again, we're not, those are the things that are going on in terms of the social distancing going forth. And we, they are going to be carried through the month of May for the K to 12 and through the rest of the summer uh, programs for the university systems. We did get a survey as parents in the school district here in Lee County asking us whether or not we would feel comfortable to have our children enter, I believe it was after Labor Day or before. Typically our school year ends at the end of May and the children go back to school in early August. But there's some consideration around the school of pushing that back until after Labor Day, I guess. I don't, I don't know. It's all very emergent. My vote was, of course, was for later. And where I am with my kids right now is the same place that we have been for the several past several weeks. My youngest daughter, vivacious and hilarious as she is at the ripe old age of three, is one of those vulnerable people. She has a history of major health problems. She had respiratory failure previously. She had been immune compromised and she has had in her past a rare blood disease. And actually some of the research that's coming out around that now and some of the clinical evidence that uh, people are finding, especially pediatrics, is that the coronavirus itself has some effects on the vascular system and really does a number on bloods and adults who had blood cancers in particular are much more susceptible to you know, long-term damage or death from the coronavirus. So even though her blood disease is not a blood cancer, it's kind of like, like half leukemia is the best way to describe it. She had the blood destruction part, but her body kept making more. So it destroy it and it make more, destroy it and make more. And then it still, she ended up destroying it at a faster rate than she could build it, but the building part was still working in her, which is not the case in, in leukemia. So with her, she's somebody who's probably now triply susceptible to uh, the negative effects around coronavirus. So to protect her uh, as a vulnerable person, 
we will be continuing to stay home for the foreseeable future. And this goes back to not only the the care and concern I have for my child and wanting to make sure that her brother and sister and myself don't become vectors of disease transmission to her, but going back to some of the issues that I've had here in the state of Florida with the data overall, I am very concerned about the integrity of the data that we see coming out of the state. It's very clear that the testing numbers are being batched. And that means what I, from me as somebody who is a data analyst and does a lot of work with numbers and statistics, what that means to me is it, it, it over a pattern. And to me, it almost looks like it's every like Tuesday and Saturday, there's a giant leap in the numbers. And it's, you know, sometimes even twice as much as the day or two beforehand. And so what that really means is that it's likely that these testing facilities are only sending their testing out every couple of days or or however they're doing it, or they're only being processed because a lot of the, there's a very small number of tests that are being done through the Florida Department of Health the large, the vast, vast majority of the tests done here in Florida are being done by third-party vendors, um, Quest, and I forget the name of the other one, but they are testing facilities for multitudes of things. So they're sending them out kind of, you know, as they are. And I would suspect probably some of the bigger areas that are doing a lot of testing, those are, that's where the major shift is coming. Anyway, point being is that it's very unreliable to say that, okay, we have two or three days of declining numbers of cases because right after those two or three days of decline, we have a big shoot up. The other thing is, is kind of, um, there's a data visualization issue as, as far as I'm concerned with the, the dashboard. And so it looks really dubious. It looks like we are going down, but again, it's because they're doing a bar chart for each day rather than like plotting the trend, so to speak. and just overall with my experience here in the state of Florida, they do not have good measurement and tracking systems. They do not have a commitment to data fidelity. They absolutely, absolutely as a policy have a commitment to image. That happens here in Southwest Florida, that happens at the state level too. They're much, much more comfortable telling the story with data that they want to tell rather than letting the data tell you the story and then making decisions from there. That's the camp that I live in. The camp that I live in is let's do the research and then figure it out. They live in the political and PR camp here in the state of Florida, the Republican administration under Ron DeSantis. They have, they live in this, well, we got to make it look good. And same thing with Rick Scott. And that's why we have a crappy unemployment website. We'll get back to that in a moment. But between that situation, between the numbers that we see coming out, we already know that there is not truthfulness in the way that the numbers are being reported, whether or not they're being reported accurately through places like nursing homes and home health care facilities. We already know that they're not being reported accurately in terms of the numbers of deaths, particular versus what's being reported in the hospital versus what you know the um, the coroners and those who are certifying the deaths are saying and there's a discrepancy there, and there is just a lot of issues that 
they have with the data from my perspective as somebody who delves into this all the time that leave me questioning questioning whether or not we really are on a down stroke in terms of the coronavirus. In fact, I would probably say we are not. We are probably at best, at best, plateauing potentially. And, but we're still not down. We're not like done. And so really what's crazy to me about the opening is that we're, we're working on opening the state and we're really essentially in the same place that we were about three weeks ago, right? We're maybe starting to either plateau, potentially trend down. I find that information somewhat dubious. But we're still at a pretty high level. We still have pretty well documented community spread of this illness. We know more now in terms of how dangerous this can be to different types of people, different vulnerable populations, but also to our essential workers and nurses and healthcare uh, workers who are getting infected at incredibly high rates. The racial and equity issues that are being uncovered by the people who are not only being infected, but are dying in our hospital system is, is an issue as well. And again, the kind of overlap between not only the kinds of living arrangements that people who are uh, of color and as well as people who are low socioeconomic status have, as well as the types of jobs that they typically have, kind of, you know, you know, and then you throw in a dash of you know, latent bias in the, the medical industry, then you, you have a, a pretty terrible disaster for a very, very disproportionate death rate among people of color in, because of the coronavirus here in the United States. So anyway, point being is that there's a lot of people who are very excited about businesses being open, but ultimately we're really not in any better shape than we were at the beginning you know, or a couple weeks into this stay at home order, you know, in the early parts of April. And so for me, I'm, I'm not planning on making any moves. I don't have any burning desire to run out to a store or anything. So we're just staying home and staying safe to protect little Evie here as we have been for the past several weeks. And we will continue to do so until there is a clear vaccine until there is a good uh, treatment for this. We did have some hopeful news around a treatment. So that's, that's a step in the right direction as well as just the numbers are really definitively actually trending down. And the thing that's going to be a little bit of a problem here is that now that we're opening up, we kind of have another two week, lag here, right? So we'll probably see it dip down here, you know, continue to either stay or dip as it has been. And then now we'll have another two week incubation period. And then we're going to see another spike. If history tells us anything, that's likely what's going to happen. So I, I don't wish that that was what is going to happen, but that is likely what's going to happen. And I'm just very worried about the quality of data that we're getting out of the state of Florida. So speaking of which, speaking of like terrible, ridiculous, 
politically motivated, horrible situations for people in the state of Florida. Let's talk a little bit about the unemployment system and the unemployment website in the state of Florida. We have been dealing with this since the very beginning of March, since the beginning of the economic fallout related to the coronavirus pandemic. The Florida Department of Education or Economic Opportunity, which is underneath the administration in Governor Ron DeSantis's jurisdiction here in the state of Florida, has been nothing short of a disaster. And by the way, which it has been even prior to this, it's been nothing but a sham from the very beginning. And I love that the idea is we're going to bring jobs here and things like that. But I will tell you flat out that I have worked with them before on a grant that they had given to a government. The grant was actually to pay themselves to hire to hire a, a consultant to come down and tell this government, this local government entity, how to do something. And here's the kicker of it. It actually was a stolen, you know, trademarked plan that they were given that belonged to somebody else. It belonged to an organization called Heart and Soul that I had worked with through, had been acquainted with through my work at the Community Development Society as one of the leaders of that professional and academic organization focusing on community development. That organization had actually, um, the organization that did heart and soul, they actually won an award from our association. And so when this consultant that had been granted to the government and then back to the state government came down and started talking about that, I immediately, I was hired on as like a a sub-consultant to try and help the government, local government organization, you know, do what they needed to do because they didn't really like this state consultant who wasn't really giving them what they needed. And so I started talking with that state consultant and he was using this proprietary information from another organization. And I really, I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. I actually emailed the organization afterwards. I'm like, you know, that the Florida department of economic uh, opportunity is basically just bootlegging your you know, your product and your tool that you, you know, make your living off of (laughs) in their nonprofit too, but they, but they function as a, as an operating foundation. And, um, but anyway, long story short, they, the state of Florida sold it. They had this kind of huckster, you know, bait and switch, like shell game kind of thing. So these communities in local governments thought they were getting a grant when it was just like a grant to hire the Department of Economic Opportunity to come down and give them somebody else's proprietary information and have it, you know, not actually be done the way that it was supposed to be done. And I know that as well. So yeah, I've not seen a lot of confidence around the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity being a a well-run legitimate organization that's focused on anything more than pulling in dollars for big, big corporations and twisting the arms of local governments to give tax subsidies and things like that into these organizations that are coming in to try and relocate headquarters or whatever. 
um, you know, kind of boondoggle rent seeking kind of crap that big corporations pull with governments and not to mention like the overseas trip and stuff. And I do believe that there was like a trip to China that Rick Scott went on. Hmm. Should look a little bit more into that for somebody who's been bashing China so much, but trying to build relationships with um, overseas companies, trying to get them to invest here in Florida is also the thing, which is like just a really, just a stupid way to, to go about economic development because it very, very seldom trickles down to actual people making money. It's, it's just a, this very high end, you know, you know, big entity, corporate entity to state entity, you know, love fest where they get to give each other, you know, trade-offs and, uh, yeah. And then we get jobs, we get crappy jobs out of it. So yay for the regular people who get crappy jobs. Anyway, so back to the unemployment website. So the unemployment website was designed to fail by then governor Rick Scott and the downturn after the great recession in 2009, 2010. Uh, by the way, Rick Scott is kicking that further back to Charlie Chris because why not, right? So anyway, they, um, it, as soon as the influx of people started coming and we had the hundreds of thousands of people trying to get their unemployment, it's just been a nonstop shit show since then. There's been very few people whose process have been claimed, have been fully, pro claims have been fully processed. I heard it was something around 20 some odd percent. There's continuing problems. They've shut down the website, you know, three weekends in a row. They've scrapped the old website, built a new website to the tune of like a hundred million dollars or something like that. Like just completely insane. Still doesn't work. Still has downtime. There's a gap of people who had applied somewhere between mid-March to the beginning of April, like there, or, uh, sorry, yes, somewhere in, the, I'm sorry, the beginning of April, that their claims have just gone, like, missing. There were people now, there's reports now that people who got some funds and then, but they aren't continuing to receive them. And this is all because it, embedded in the website were all these stupid little things that you had to do to keep getting unemployment. You had to prove that you were looking for a job after two weeks. You, you know, you had to do X, Y, and Z um, and, you know, prove that you were worth it to, to give this thing that your employer paid into, by the way. So, you know, just, and then they also never fully integrated what was in the CARES Act coming down from the federal government into the qualifications. And so we had people getting paper checks for their extra $600 and and things like that, which by the way, created this really interesting scenario where now there are some people between what they were gonna get or supposed to get from the unemployment insurance and then the $600 extra component from the CARES Act that they were in the position where they were actually going to make more money than they would have at their regular job, right? Now this really, really pissed off people like now Senator, Rick Scott. He couldn't believe that poor people might make a couple hundred dollars. Couldn't believe it. Not just poor people, but, you know, people poorer than him when he's got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Duh. But he couldn't believe that some people might make more. Couldn't believe it. 
And he's like, well, they're never going to go back to work. Here, guess what? Guess what? Newsflash. Newsflash. Rick Scott. Uh, those jobs, if they got laid off, they're not coming back. They're not there. Like, there's no job for them to go get if they were laid off in this kind of first early rounds of the pandemic, right? And by the way, they're going to have a heck of a hard time finding almost anything at this point in time because we are looking forward, of course, to massive global economic contraction, right? Just this is going to, the economic fallout for this is going to be something like we have not seen in this lifetime in this world potentially since the great depression we are talking breaking down of economic systems significant raise in global abject poverty global hunger raise in poverty in the united states raise in hunger in the united states um we're already sitting at about i think 25 percent of the workforce being unemployed in a month's time these are things that are going to be extremely challenging for people to come back from. Not to mention, by the way, you have a whole crop of new people who just graduated this weekend who aren't counted specifically in that workforce uh, calculation because they're still students who now would be part of that. And we're talking tens of thousands, again, of now students who are likely to not be able to get a job coming straight out of this and graduating college in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's going to be extremely challenging for them. So anyway, so we have the situation where we got Rick Scott being really offended that some people may make more than they would have working and now they're never going to want to work. Of course, my response on Twitter was, I don't know, give them the money, let the market decide the rest, because here's the thing, if it really comes down to it and there are jobs and there are things that need to be done. and those com companies are going to need to figure out how to pay them. This is where we look at overall in our system, not only just the complete failure of this particular government entity to the point of being punitive to people who need help, right? That was really the point is that they're trying to punish people to artificially put them back into the workforce and basically to push them back into lower paying, crappier jobs, which by the way, in a Florida who runs in Florida, who runs on a tourism and hospitality economy, there's always tons of really challenging, dirty jobs in and low paying jobs in the restaurant and hospitality industry and ag too. If you want to go out in the ag industry too, there's lots and lots of low paying jobs in those areas as, as well. And ag has even lower, of course, an artificially lowered rate compared to even regular laborers, right, of, of any kind. So yeah, so those jobs have been low, pay has been low, because they want to offer things cheap to people. And so it kind of feeds into the consumer economy, but it keeps a significant portion of the people of the state of Florida who are trying to work, working in these dead end, low paying, part time, no benefit jobs that feed this tourism industry, that feed in wealthy people coming in from the outside, that feed into the snowbirds and the retirees coming in down here, that feeds into this upper echelon of society who gets to live high on the hog while everybody else just gets by in the pittance. And so that's what things like having the two week work requirement 
do because if you had if you were a professional or semi-professional or you had some other kind of job that essentially wasn't in retail within two weeks in the old system you had to be out there looking so you may take and opt for one of those crappy jobs that are always open by the way there's always always a huge need because those jobs are thankless jobs they are you know very challenging they're hard on your body and you don't make money and they don't have the security you know they don't have oftentimes regular jobs the people are very low in terms of their their power ratio between them and their boss so you're always you know you're you're a nobody essentially in a lot of these jobs and it's just very unfulfilling and so yeah i don't feel bad with the idea that some of these people are going to make a couple hundred extra bucks and that might help them keep their house or feed their kids. I don't feel bad about that at all. And frankly, I'm actually, you know, I have been thinking specifically about adding in a plank around universal basic income into my policy platform. And I really think that this is something that we need to do specifically. There's a house bill that proposes giving people $2,000 a month. I think that's a good idea. Andrew Yang made it a component of his presidential campaign was something that I was in support of at that time. There has been a lot of evidence around this being a good idea for people in general, for, for households and families uh, to have a universal basic income because it really does eliminate a lot of problems. And frankly, where you're going to save the most money, here's the thing where you're gonna save the most money with something around the universal basic income, you're gonna save it on administrative costs and other programs. And that's just the truth, right? And if you think of it like this, for every government program that we have, you know, the SNAP, the food benefits, social welfare, social security disability, all these kinds of programs that are administered at the government, there's always this concept, particularly put in by the fiscally conservative folks, mostly Republicans and a handful of moderate Democrats that likes to have these means testing, that likes to get people to prove that they deserve help, okay? And they have long and arduous applications to get people these things, okay? And it's all in an effort, just like we see here in the state of Florida with the unemployment website. It's an effort to get, to dissuade people from doing it by making it a, a challenging process and making it a barrier. It's to, knock out as many people as possible through technicalities and it's really just to make people feel like they're beholden to something and it's you're good and you're bad right and if you're good you can get through the system we'll give you a little bit but if you're bad you don't deserve it you can't get access to this universal basic income will take away all of that all of that stuff it just will because now you will have so much significantly lower amounts of people accessing things like food benefits and that you won't have to have those means testing. You won't have to have somebody sitting in an office paper pushing, checking to see whether or not folks are actually qualified and deserving, quote unquote, of these things. People just are. And it will really, and for all the people who love the bootstrap pulling concept, if you do the universal basic income, that will make people have to figure out what they need to do. But here's the truth around that, right? 
is that for everybody who wants to look at somebody who's impoverished or has problems and wants to finger point and say, well, they're just not good at this. They're just not good at this life thing, right? They're not good at organizing and planning and saving and taking care of their kids and blah, 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 okay? There's a lot of that. It happens up and down the scale. The truth is, is that people who are with little means are typically the best planner, okay? Because they always have to have a constellation of free resources, families and friends in their networks that can help them. And this is actually borne out in data, by the way. If you look at very low income neighborhoods, they have high levels of bonding social capital. And what that means is they have very tight relationships with other people who are similar to them in their same network. So relationships amongst people in poor neighborhoods, when they live there together, are extremely tight. And it has everything to do with this concept that I'm talking about, that people, when they are limited in their means and resources, they have to rely on what they have around them. They bootstrap it. They figure it out. They know that if they don't have a car and their neighbor has a car, that they can get their kid a ride to band practice or whatever it is, right? And they work it around and they work hard to make those things happen for themselves. They can make meals happen. They make babysitting schedules work in ways that are absolutely amazing that unless you've seen it firsthand, you would, you, you would have a hard time knowing how it works. But this is this is what what is true, and everybody who is little of little means, you know that what I'm saying is true. So if you give people who already have little means a, a universal basic income, you better believe that the vast majority of those people are going to make it work. They're going to take care of their kids. They're going to take care of their house. They're going to probably make improvements to their house. They're going to help sick family members. They're going to take medicine when they're sick. Okay, these this is what a universal basic income is going to do. The idea of fraud and waste in our social benefit system is a ridiculous component of overprotection that has made it actually more expensive overall for us to run these programs. There is a lower amount of fraud in our social benefit programs than there is theft internally called shrinkage from places like Walmart. Companies like Walmart, they factor this into their business model. They know that roughly 10, 11% of their stock is going to be, or their stock, their products, right, are going to be stolen by their, their staff. That it's just going to go missing or broken or whatever, right? They just calculate that into the cost of business. But rather than doing that, we're worried about four or 5% shrinkage and a you know, a government program, and then, then we overcompensate. We have to hire analysts and paper pushers and evaluation folks to look at information in these means testing. And those people end up costing way more than you would have lost if you had just kind of assumed the risk. So that being said, I am increasingly a proponent of this universal basic income for both on principles of efficiency and effectiveness in government and just for the concept of putting people first. And I can't imagine a bigger waste of money, time, resources, and energy than we have seen in the Florida unemployment system. 
I just, the press conferences alone, the scrambling, the hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, frankly, if we had just taken that hundreds of millions of dollars that we use to build two websites that don't work, can't we just like start cutting checks to people from there? Can we just do that? Like, I don't understand what the big deal is. We have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to hand out hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Um, to the point where, and it's all these means testing again. And this is the thing that really uh, was upsetting about the press conference that Ron DeSantis held today. And that was that he not only kicked the can down the road to the, you know, back to Rick Scott and Rick Scott down to, to Charlie Crist in terms of the crappy initial website, but that he was also put the blame back on the people, that the people didn't do the right thing. They didn't put in their right paperwork. Well, guess what, Governor DeSantis, you didn't do the right thing. You didn't have your programmers put the right information in so that people could qualify. And yes, we understand that this is an unprecedented time that a way more people were trying to access the system than it was capable of handling. We understand that. But you proved that you have nothing but incompetent cronies around you when you couldn't fix that system to incorporate the components that it was supposed to incorporate. And you turn around and blame the people trying to get what is due to them. Now, how, how? offensive is that that's incredibly offensive to me some of these people have been without a paycheck since the end of march and to have the governor point that finger back at you saying it was your fault that you didn't get the check on time i i mean this is this is horrifying this is awful this is not leadership. This is not leadership. It is scapegoating people who are vulnerable, who are just trying to make ends meet, to feed their family, to keep their house, to pay their bills. And Governor DeSantis, your job was to help. And everybody in your administration and the administrations before them, your job was to make a government that works for people. Not to kick the legs out from underneath the system to make yourself look better. That's exactly what we have here. We have a system that was hobbled so that a couple of losers who already made their fortunes off of fraud could look good. And I'm mad. And I'm mad about it. I'm mad for all the people in the state of Florida who had to wait. I'm mad listening to the blame game, the kick the can down the road game. I'm mad at the insinuation that people who rely on this system to work to help them make up their ends meet are the culprit and the blame when it's very clearly poor government administration. Very clear. And not only that, not only was it, we could go back again, we could go back and say, but here's the thing, you didn't fix it. You didn't fix it. 
that way. You didn't fix it in two weeks. You didn't fix it in three weeks. You didn't fix it after a hundred million dollars. When's it gonna end? When are the people going to get paid? And at this point in time, they deserve all their back money and they deserve that extra bit from the federal government. And I think that we need to fire you. And I think we need to fire that entire department, Florida Department of Economic Opportunity. They can go away, right? We'll give it to somebody who's competent. Now, there's so much other crap that went along with this as well. Like, you know, the only Democrat elected to the state government, Nikki Freed, had offered up staff, 40 staff from her office and was re rejected. By the way, just in case you didn't know that, Rick, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis rejected 40 additional state employees to process those claims, said no thanks because he didn't want to have a political favor owed to a Democrat when you talk about stupid partisanship, right? Um we also do have a light in the tunnel when it comes to this. And we have some of our state legislators who are looking to have a special session. They're looking to have a special session to try to address the issues with the unemployment system. This is being led by Anna Eskamani. And uh, cheers to her for that. And the other thing that they want to address is the voting in the state of Florida. So I think that that is a good opportunity as well. Hopefully they're gonna be advocating for universal vote by mail. And frankly, it's an opportunity and I'm going to be reaching out to our coalition of candidates. It's an opportunity for them if they can convene here in the next couple of weeks to lower the ballot requirements for those candidates. We're looking at a heck of a lot of candidates who just aren't gonna be able to make it on the ballot here in the state of Florida between the very, very confusing directions from the Secretary of State regarding how to collect signatures to you know, local elections offices, not having clear processes on how to collect those ballots. And it's been better, I would say, now than it was earlier in the election cycle here at the, well, the beginning of the pandemic where the congressional candidates had to have their petitions in and there was just no guidance and everything was a ghost town. So this is an opportunity and I do encourage our state legislators here in the state of Florida to highly consider if they are going to convene a special session to talk about elections that they consider permanently reducing the ballot requirements across the board. Because at this point in time, Florida still has the highest ballot requirements for congressional candidates in the United States. And that is, really creating this system where only the elites, the wealthy and the well-connected have a shot at getting on the ballot um, or, you know, without extreme penalty. <laughs> you know, for me, I did qualify for the ballot, uh, but I had to empty my campaign bank account to do so. Uh, not like the other Republicans running in this district, this district uh, who are, to, you know, funding themselves to the tune of $1 million, $3 million. You know, I don't have that. I'm just a regular mom who's like most of the people here in the state of Florida that are looking at, you know, I've lost hours in my job. I am a part-time faculty at the university. So I, my job may be cut depending on the student enrollments moving forward. And so my situation is pretty precarious too. And even on a good day, I wasn't going to have a million dollars to throw in the bank, let alone 
couple thousand dollars. I have to hustle for everything. So, and I'll keep hustling, but I, I just think that, you know, rather than using this, everybody's got to like you or you could just have enough money to pay, you know, metric to get people on the ballot. Let's just, let's just say that people who want to run can get on the ballot and then let the voters decide. And I really hope that the state, if they convene a special session, will take some consideration for that as well. So that is, I think, bringing us up to where we are. I did want to look forward, and I keep trying to look forward on this, thinking about how we may re-envision these systems. You know, one of the biggest criticisms coming out of the Great Recession was that we didn't do a good job of looking out beyond our nose at that point in time. We were just trying to stop the bleeding economically and move forward, you know? And, but a lot of the policies coming out of the, of the Great Recession, they were direct contributors to the growing wealth inequities in this country. It did not appropriately penalize or curtail the incredibly risky and unsustainable behavior of a lot of investors. And even prior to this, we were looking at some pretty precarious years to come on the edge of bubbles around student loan debt, around auto debt. And we just have not had a lot of sound decision-making, financially speaking, after after the Great Recession. So I, I want to be part of the solution when it comes to looking forward and restructuring what our economy is going to have to look like. Um, the other things that give me kind of hope looking forward is we saw some data coming out that the pollution over the state of Florida has significantly reduced over the last month. So, and we saw that with other places around the world as you know, the stay at home orders and lockdowns were happening in various countries, how waters were cleared and skies were cleared. And if there's anything that I hope that we can get out of this is to kind of start to recognize a little bit more what our actual environmental damage is in, you know, like right in front of our face kind of thing. I think that when we talk about global warming, it can get very abstract for people. But we can see the pollution, and right, and we see these, you know, clearer waters in Venice, and seeing the Himalayas from India. These are pretty dramatic visual representations of our human contribution to the poor quality in the environment. I think it's easy to say it was somebody else, but now I'm hoping we can at least look and say, no, that really was us. <laughs> And maybe we can start to make some changes, both within our individual households, but also within our government structures. And I'm somebody who wants to, to help with that as well. So I think I'm going to call that an end for today. There's a lot more I could go on and diatribe about. But if you want to see me diatribe more, I do encourage you to check me out on Facebook. That's Facebook uh, uh, backslash SWFLMom2020. And I have Friday night wine times at nine at 10 p.m. No, no, I'm sorry, 9 p.m. 9 p.m. on Fridays, 10 a.m. Saturday mornings on Facebook Live is Coffee Talk. Friday night is really a recap of the week, what 
we did in the campaign, what's going on in the, the world and Florida. And Saturday morning, Coffee Talk is kind of a, a deep dive into certain issues. I want to create the feeling of us having a, a you know a morning chat after reading the paper over coffee. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't subscribe to a, like a physical paper anymore, but you know, I'm reading newspaper articles <laughs> from newspaper and journalistic sources. And the idea is we will have a conversation about these, you know, in-depth things that are going on. So it's a bit more of a deep dive on certain particular aspects of it. Whereas Friday nights are kind of like a recap and, uh, you know, having a good laugh uh, diatribe situation. I have good laughs on the coffee talk as well. We also have various virtual town hall meetings locally coming up this week on Wednesday, May 6th at, let me double check, 1 p.m. We're going to have Pastor Juan Gonzalez, who's running for Lee County Commission here in Southwest Florida, join us to talk about the future of our community or what's next for our community. So uh, Pastor Gonzalez is going to tell us a little bit about what he's seen on the ground through his work with community organizations and kind of thinking together about how we can help our community here in Southwest Florida. Next week's town hall will be on Tuesday, the 11th, 2 p.m. And that town hall is going to be focusing on our future. So thinking together about where we may go from here. And both of those you can register for on my website under the connect section. And those are hosted on GoToWebinar platform. So they will also be recorded and shared as well. So you can watch them afterwards if you do not join. I also have been part of the No Dem Left Behind Coalition weekly virtual town hall meetings on Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern. The past couple of weeks, we've had very fantastic hosts. We had Alyssa Milano. We had former Representative Katie Hill. Last week, we had resistance activist Scott Dworkin. And this week, we have everybody's favorite, favorite Twitter dad, Brooklyn Dad Defiant. He's somebody who has gone viral for his, you know, cut to the point tweets and really looking forward to a fantastic session with him. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can check out No Dem Left Behind and register for the event. Of course, I share all of these things not only on my Facebook page, but also on my Twitter account, also at SWFLMom2020. So be sure to check those out as well. Um, I'm on Instagram, but Instagram, I try to tell a little bit more of my life story. So I got pictures of my cats and my kids and other things. But, you know, I get some of the other political stuff in there too. But check me out, Instagram, SWFLMom2020. You can see a theme, can't you? All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening in today. I do hope that you are staying well through these trying times and know that there are people who are ready to help to take us to the next level and fight for the people. And I am absolutely one of those. Stay well. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyay.